I figured we'd move to a big city. I would be able to start working with a local firm. Instead, we got reassigned to the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, to the middle of cotton fields right on the Texas border. So I really needed to pursue the virtual para planning. I'm Ian Harvey from New York City, and you're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for another awesome episode, this time number 142. In today's episode, Alex Hopkin of Simply Paraplanner joins our host, Matt Fazell, to explore the history of Simply Paraplanner and what you can expect if you're looking to hire for virtual back office support. Also, if you're listening and want to know more about being a paraplanner, standing out in the hiring process, and the education you'd need under your belt, they've got you covered as well. From standing out as a paraplanner and getting hired, to hiring your first paraplanner and building processes, Alex Hopkin and Matt Fazell discuss everything paraplanning in today's episode that is the perfect fit. Stay tuned. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited to talk about this topic, uh, paraplanning, which, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things in the industry which has been tossed around there as a, a term for uh, various roles. And I'm really excited to hear, you know, what you're doing with your business and uh, how you got to be where you are. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing now, uh, what firm you're working at and what your title is there. Sure. So I am the founder of Simply Paraplanner which is a job board website. We connect financial planning firms with virtual paraplanners across the country. So I guess, how did that come to be? Were you working as a paraplanner before that, or were you working in a financial planning firm and just uh, decided this was a passion project that you wanted to pursue as a legitimate business? So it really came out of necessity. I am a military spouse. And with that, we move frequently. We move all the time. And a number of years ago, I think it was back in Well, I guess in 2010, we moved overseas to Japan. And while we were living overseas, I still wanted to pursue the CFP and I still wanted to become a financial planner, but there was no way for me to work with a financial planning firm overseas. I had to work virtually. So the entire time that we were overseas, I looked for a a virtual opportunity. I sent emails to any firm I could think of and really pitched my services and tried to convince them to allow me to work virtually. And it was, it was extremely difficult. I wasn't able to find virtual work at the time. Instead, I spent the time focusing on the CFP. I studied for it. I passed the exam and everything while living overseas. And then I figured as soon as we moved stateside, I would be able to start working with a firm. I figured we'd move to a big city. I would be able to start working with a local firm. But that was far from the case. Instead, we got reassigned to the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, to the middle of cotton fields right on the Texas border. And it's so far remote that the closest target is 45 minutes away. And that is straight highway, 45 minutes away to the closest star- or Starbucks and Target. So as you can imagine, there weren't financial planning firms there either. So instead of moving to the city and being able to work within a firm, I found myself just as remote as I was on this island in Japan. So I really needed to pursue the virtual paraplanning. I really needed to find something virtual for my lifestyle. And at this point, I now had a child as well. So I wanted to be able to be with my kid, not commute an insane amount of time just to work with the only firm that was nearby. So um, I kept reaching out to firms and looking for virtual positions. And around that time, I heard about the XYPN conference 
it was this community of virtual planners that were going to be gathering together. And I figured if anyone was going to hire me, if I could convince anyone to allow me to work virtually, it was going to be within this community of virtual planners. So I went to that conference knowing that I didn't want to be a firm owner, knowing that XYPN was not the right route for me, but just hoping to network and find someone within that community. So I did. And sure enough, I found not just one virtual paraplanning gig, but multiple. And while I was there, the number one concern that kept being brought up during the discussions were virtual paraplanners, where to find them, how to start working with them. And I remember clearly in one session, the speaker asked the audience who was interested in hiring virtually. Every single hand was raised in that room. Then they turned the tables. They said, is anyone in this room interested in working virtually? And I stood up and I was the only one there that was interested in working virtually. So then the question became, how do we connect these people? How do we find virtual paraplaners that want to work with financial planners? And the answer was always, there is no place. Word of mouth, you know, you just, good luck finding each other. And so it was at that point that I decided, hey, no one else should have to go through as difficult as a time that I had finding virtual positions. So I, I found myself virtual roles, but now I'm like, hey, let's connect all of these individuals that I know are also looking for virtual work with all these planners that I see here looking for virtual pair planners. I'm guessing you couldn't serve every hand that was raised in the room. Am I right? Correct. Yes. I found two planners that day that, that I aligned well with and made sense and we decided to work together. There's a lot of really great things um, going on here and we'll, we'll definitely talk more about the virtual here in a little while, but you know, I, one of those things that I've run into, you know, when I'm either at a conference or, you know, just talking to other planners is this word paraplanner. So when people hear the word paraplanner, what traditionally has come to their mind? I think traditionally the word paraplanner means an entry-level position, very entry-level used as a stepping stone to become a financial planner. And as far as I know, that is how people have viewed this position. I, you know, I guess just to ask you, in your opinion, you know, not only what do other paraplanners do, but when you were, you know, forging that path for yourself, how did you communicate what a paraplanner actually does? So just to be clear, I do not believe that paraplanning is an entry-level role. I believe that paraplanning, that paraplanners are really the technical experts, whether it's back office or middle office, middle office meaning they communicate with clients as needed for the plan. I believe that a paraplanner becomes a technical expert and actually creates the financial plans. Um, you know, it's important that they are knowledgeable and have gone through the CFP coursework, for example, and are able to really hone in on the financial plan, whether it's inputting the data into the software, um, actually creating the plans, creating reports for the advisors, creating preliminary recommendations for the advisors. All of that falls into paraplanning. You know, you mentioned the CFP exam, obviously, you know, those who are career changers or who are just graduating and coming out of college might not have that designation. Um, you know, based on experience, is there an actual variance in what a paraplanner's role might look like within a firm? And, you know, definitely as they progress, is there a legitimate career path for a paraplanner? Yeah. So we help a number of different firms hire paraplanners. And I'll tell you that when these firms hire paraplanners, we see the structure of the position vary greatly between firms. It really depends on what the firm is currently doing and what they're hoping to outsource. So the number one goal is to be able to offload work and spend more time client-facing. 
And so I work with the advisors to figure out what that looks like. What sort of tasks that fall under the financial planning process are they hoping to offload to free up more time? And so it really does vary greatly from firm to firm. Sometimes we'll see a paraplanner be sort of a jack of all trades. Those are usually much smaller firms where they hire someone to wear multiple hats and they help with everything from CSA level work all the way up to the actual planning work and presenting the preliminary recommendations to the advisor. Other times in larger firms, they have it much more structured as far as what a paraplanner does. So a paraplanner will strictly do the planning work. They will work with, say, eMoney or MoneyGuide Pro, inputting the data and putting together these reports for the, for the advisor. So it really depends on the firm size and their current process. You know, I guess the, the million dollar question out there for, for the advisors listening is, you know, when you have a, a variance in the role and it, it takes time to figure out exactly how you want to use a paraplanner within your firm, how the heck do you decide what you're going to be paying them? Right. That is a million dollar question. And we get asked that all the time. And I hate to say it depends, but it really does depend on the role that you're hiring for and the level of expertise that you're that you are hiring. So we tell people, we recommend just going with an industry standard and basing it off of the experience level, education level, and expertise of the individual that you're hiring for. So for example, if you are a small firm and you're hiring someone to be a jack of all trades, you want them to do CSA level work, but also do the planning work, and you want them to be a CFP with two years of experience, you're going to have to pay that level of a CFP at two at two years of experience. You can't vary or pay them less because they're doing a CSA level work. If they're doing the level of work that they are qualified for, you're going to have to pay that that top tier. Do you have like an hourly rate of what you would suggest for someone, you know, with the CFP versus, you know, maybe in that stage of they've passed the exam, but they're still looking to fill that experience requirement? Do you have a typical number that you'll, you'll throw out there to an advisor? So it really does depend. And so I hate to say that, but it really does depend on the situation. Um, I can throw out just very, very generic numbers and just know that depending on your situation and the tasks that you're hiring for, it could vary quite a bit. But just to throw numbers out there, let's say entry level, they don't have a CFP yet. And the, the entry level hourly rate that we see is $30 per hour. Once they gain more expertise, say they've passed the CFP exam, um, maybe they don't have a CFP yet, but they have a few years of experience under their belt, then it might go up to $35, $40 per hour. Once they are a full-blown CFP and have a number, of ex- a number of years of experience under their belt, or maybe they are a subject matter expert, say in taxes or estate planning, for example, then you're probably looking at $50 per hour. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, that definitely is quite a range. And obviously, as the advisors are developing that role and figuring out exactly what that's going to look like, you know, what type of hurdles are an advisor or are advisors facing when they start that hiring process? What are some of the biggest pain points out there that you've seen in helping advisors not only define that role, but actually find a candidate and, and place them within the firm? There are a number of different struggles, I would say. The first is probably figuring out what they want to outsource. And so in order to do that, in order to to hire someone, you really need to figure out what you're hiring for. So in order to do that, I have the advisors write down all of the different tasks that fall under the financial planning process and just make a list of all of the ones that they are hoping to outsource, that they really wish they could offload, whether they don't enjoy doing it 
um, it's taking up too much of their time, too much of their time that they could be spending elsewhere, like growing their business, being client facing, um, doing marketing, for example. So anything that they either don't like doing or feel that they could outsource, I have them create this list. And then from there, we'll help them create a job listing that they can post. Um, I think the next issue that arises, many firms feel that they need to have all of their systems and processes in place before they can hire. Mm. So a lot of people kick the can down the road. They say, I'll hire in six months once my processes are in place. But then in six months, their processes still aren't in place. And they'll say, okay, I'll wait in another six months and have my processes in place. And and I think that's one of the biggest myths is that you have to have all of your systems and processes documented and 100% ready to go when you hire, because that's what our paraplanners can do. Our paraplanners can come in, shadow you, and document as you're going through the training what it is that you're doing. So whether, say it's even just in a Google document, if they're following you and seeing what you're currently doing for a process, now suddenly you have a second hand that can go behind you and turn that into a repeatable process that can even be used to train later hires as well. Yeah, that, that's a really great point. And I think too, have you have you ever noticed, you know, maybe the advisors, do they ever struggle to really get those processes not only on paper, but actually explain how someone should actually carry out that process and some of the nuances of, you know, creating a financial plan? Are there ever struggles there? Sometimes I would say a lot of these firms that we help hire, a lot of them, this is their first hire and they've never had to train before. And so we recommend doing a lot of screen sharing. You can also record your screen while you're doing a regular task that you do all the time. You can just record your screen and then share that with a paraplanner. And that helps a lot with training as well. Um, And sometimes you've been in the business for so long that you forget how to start from scratch and explain the process from beginning to end. So having someone shadow you or recording a video for them allows them to watch it over and over again. Um, and go at their pace and really see everywhere you click and see everything you do and see the considerations um, and allow them to ask questions as well so that they really understand what it is that you want them to be doing. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of value in just seeing how each advisor does it. Um, you know, the the advisors I've worked with throughout my career, it seems that everyone has a slightly different way of doing things. So, you know, just taking the time to train and show people how it's done is, is probably valuable for the advisor, right? Absolutely. And you're right when you say that every firm does things differently. And it's important to remember that, that your process probably does not look like the firm next to you's process. You know, So when you bring on a virtual paraplanner, um, it's really important not to assume that they are going to know your process right away. Because there's a good chance that they are working with other advisors who do things very, very differently. Um, so training is really key. You know, when those advisors are looking to make that that first hire, do you find that they're typically looking, you know, to make that full-time hire right away? Or are they more comfortable starting with a part-time hire the first time? Um, what have you seen in your experience with, you know, working with advisors and helping them find that, that first hire? We typically see firms hire first as a 1099 position, say 10 to 20 hours per week. And then... That usually starts off as sort of a trial basis to see to make sure that it's a good fit for everybody. Um, but then quite often, we do see that individual grow into a full-time role. Um, so either the hours will increase, or we have seen quite a few of them grow into W-2 salaried positions. And you did mention in your initial you know, spiel about Simply Paraplanner where you do 
primarily work virtually or, you know, the members of your community are virtual paraplaners. Do do advisors have any main concerns about hiring virtually? I would say the number one concern with hiring virtually becomes security. How can I ensure that my client's information is safe? And I tell advisors that working with a virtual paraplaner is going to be very important as far as the security measures go, just like working with a client virtually. So all the same security measures that you have in place working with a client virtually, you're going to have to make sure that you're doing that with your virtual paraplaner as well. And if you're not working with a client virtually right now, um, just all of the best practices that you're currently doing within your firm. So for example, make sure that you have an NDA in place with your virtual paraplaner. And then you're also going to want to make sure that expectations are clear. For example, having an encrypted hard drive is a great idea. Um, Making sure that no one is using public Wi-Fi is a big one. Not sharing client data over email, for example. You're going to want something secure, a secure document sharing software. So those are some examples of things that should already be going on in the firm and just making it clear that the virtual pair planner understands how you operate as a firm and that those best practices are shared. Yeah. And I mean, especially in today's day and age, I think just about everyone out there is probably using some sort of web, web-based software or document you know, storage tool. Um, but, but, you know, in addition to that, are there any other softwares that an advisor might want a paraplaner to have on their computers, you know, like in terms of accountability or just security or any other, you know, softwares that, that they might want a paraplaner to have or a paraplaner should have? We do get a lot of questions about what software we recommend. A good one that we recommend to advisors and paraplaners is a password sharing system, for example, LastPass. It's a great way if an advisor is unable to create an additional user for a software, but they don't want to share their password into whatever given software it is, they can share access via LastPass. So they can grant access to an individual and they can also take away access from this individual. But this individual will never see what the password is itself. So it's a great way to share logins to whatever software it is that you can't create a new login for um, without actually having to share the password. So that's a good example of a security measure. You know, a lot of these advisors who are looking to make that first hire, whether it's full-time or part-time, you know, usually they're doing that because they're they're pretty busy, right? They're, they're just running out of time or they're super stressed out with their calendar. Do you help the advisors with the hiring process at all? And what does that look like on your end from Simply Paraplanner? We do. So we have two different options for advisors to find their virtual paraplanner. We have a do-it-yourself method where an advisor can come, post their own job listing, just like an everyday job board, and advise, or sorry, virtual paraplanners can apply, and then they really figure out how to handle that process, and we are very far removed from that. The other option, we do have a full-service offering, and with that, we do help the in- along the entire hiring process. So with that one, we actually work very closely with the advisor. We have discovery calls, questionnaires to really understand what it is that they are looking for. And then we at Simply Paraplanner will write the job listing for them. So once we've written it and both parties agree that the job listing clearly defines what it is that they're looking for, we'll post it to Simply Paraplanner. And we're currently seeing anywhere from 20 to 40 applicants per job. So we're receiving a lot of applicants. And that can be really overwhelming for an advisor. 
So with the full service offering, instead of the advisor receiving, say, 40 applicants and having to go through their resumes and cover letters, instead we field those applicants. So we will get the initial candidates, say 40 of them, and then we will put them through a two-phase screening process. The first phase is a questionnaire to really weed out the obvious misfits, those that don't meet minimum qualifications or For example, they are requiring a certain number of hours that the advisor can't promise. There are certain disqualifiers that sort of don't make it through that first round. The second round, then we go through phone interviews with the candidates. And so we'll narrow down the pool even further after our phone screenings. And then we present to the advisor the top three candidates that we feel would be a good fit for their firm. So suddenly their candidate pool is shrinking from 40 qualified candidates all the way down to the top three candidates, and then they take it over from there. So now all of a sudden, they only have to interview three and decide which of those three are the best fit for their firm. Very interesting. You're doing so much of the screening. Is there a particular reason why you're not you know, recommending a top candidate uh, versus giving them those top three? There are certain things that you just can't screen for. For example, personality fits. You know, I can do my best to see who I think would be a good personality fit, but I really want to provide the advisor with three to pick from because who I might think would be the best fit, there are certain considerations, you know, culture of the firm, personality fit. Um, There are so many different things that go into choosing that one individual that I really I prefer to give them a small pool to choose from rather than placing a single individual in the firm. So you're essentially financial planner, you know, in the financial planners and saying, you know, here's options A, B, and C, here's the pros and cons of each, but ultimately it's up to you to decide which path you're going to go down. Exactly. For those of the, uh, those planners out there who might be interested in this, you know, what happens if a planner, you know, brings someone on board and they've already gone through this exhaustive candidate screening process. And for some reason it's a, it's a short-term fit and it just doesn't ultimately work out in the end. What, what can advisors expect in that type of situation? Well, I really do not want to say this out loud, but knock on some wood. So far, all of our advisors have hired from the top three candidate pool and have been very satisfied. And that's because the screening process is a very long process. But if for some reason that person ended up not being a great fit, there are a number of different options. If it's within the first 30 days, they can come back and we can review and see what went wrong. You know, we're really none of the top three a good fit for your firm. Say they did pick one of the top three and that individual wasn't the best fit. They still have two others from that top candidate pool that they can play around with. But let's just say that none of those three were good fits after their interviews or, you know, they brought them into the firm and they still weren't a good fit. Then we would go back if it's within the the first 30 days, go back and see, did we miss the mark on the job listing? Did we attract the wrong kind of candidates? Did we misunderstand what you were looking for? Then we could go back from scratch. But no matter what, if a if an advisor posts a job to our job board and say they receive 40 applicants, they will always have that candidate pool of 40 applicants. They can always take those resumes from their job listing and review any of the 40 at any time. Once they go through the process, they're, they always have that resource available to them, which is really awesome. And, and I do want to shift gears a little bit. Obviously, you know, you're having a high number of applicants for all of these jobs. Um, for the newer entrants to the profession, whether, again, they're just graduating or, you know, they've gone through the CFP education and they're 
wanting to transition into the financial planning profession, um, you know, paraplanning is not really taught anywhere uh, or talked about too much within those programs. Where do those who are interested in paraplanning go to learn more information about becoming a paraplanner or what that role really looks like on their end? You're right. When you say that there just aren't very many resources, when when I went out and started doing this on my own, I didn't know of anyone else doing this. I didn't know of any resources. I was I felt very isolated and had to figure out a lot of it on my own. Fortunately, I met with Jen Pritchard um, through Facebook, actually. She put out a Facebook post asking if anyone else was virtual pair planning. And we ended up forming a study group of five of us. And we were the only five that we knew of. And we had all had to figure this out on our own. And so we were comparing notes, comparing resources, and figuring out best practices just between us five. And that's when we decided that it would be a really good idea to create resources for individuals that want to do paraplanning. So that's really what we have been focusing on over at Simply Paraplanner. So we have the job board, which helps individuals find each other, firms and virtual paraplanners. But we decided that there needed to be a better place for those interested in becoming paraplanners to find more information. So in May, I think it was, we launched something called the Paraplanner Portal. And what that is, it's basically a virtual academy and community for virtual paraplanners. It's a place where we, Jen and myself, and our team over at Simply Paraplanner, we share all of the information that we've learned along the way. So we have templates and documents to download um, sample timesheets and invoices, even some sample contracts that you can take a look at. We have courses in there. We have forums where you can communicate with other virtual pair planners. We have, um, let's see, we, one of the biggest excitements we have in there is software trainings. So we've partnered up with a few different software companies, for example, eMoney and Money Guide Pro, where individuals can now come to the pair planner portal and train up on these software that they weren't able to train on elsewhere. You know, many entry-level jobs require a base knowledge in one of the most popular financial planning software. And before this, there wasn't a place for individuals to gain that base level of knowledge. So that's something that we offer in the Paraplanner portal as well. All right. So for those of our listeners who are, you know, interested in learning more about paraplanning, are there any designations or other types of self-education outside of Simply Paraplanner that you know, they can look at and just learn more about what it means to actually be a paraplanner versus something like a junior planner? We recommend that all virtual paraplanners or those interested in becoming a virtual paraplanner pursue the CFP coursework. And that's because the majority of our job listings require that base knowledge. They are seeking an, ind- an individual that has either finished the coursework, passed the exam, or in some cases, those that are actually CFP professionals. So we think it's a good place to start um, and at least show that you are pursuing it. There are some other designations out there. For example, there's the registered paraplanner designation. Um, And honestly, I've never seen an individual hired because they have that designation or seen any advisor request that. It's almost always the CFP designation. For those who might be interested in just taking a look at that registered paraplanner designation, what exactly does that entail? It's basically the first course of the CFP. So it's an entry-level introduction to what financial planning is. 
you talked about, you know, the hiring process with the advisors that you work with. Um, if you're getting a pool of 40 applicants, that's, you know, that's not great odds of getting your name into the top three. What are some things that, you know, those people who are interested in finding those paraplanning roles, what can they do to just set themselves apart from the majority of the candidates that you're screening through? I think there are a few things that individuals can do to stand out. The first would be to clearly read the job listing and see what the individual is looking for and address those concerns in your cover letter. And I think it's important to note that the cover letter is very, very important. Advisors love reading the cover letters. That's their first impression of who you are as a candidate. And it gives you an opportunity to provide more context to your situation and your resume and also explain things like your passion for the industry or how you relate to the individual that's hiring. I think it's a good idea to look up the website of the firm that's hiring and get to know them a little bit better. If you show that you've done your homework, you understand who the firm is, you understand who is on the team, what what members of the team are actually hiring and what the structure looks like. If you understand the types of clients that they're servicing and you can address all of this in your cover letter, that's going to go a long way and you really will stand out to those advisors. Yeah, those are great tips. And uh, two, you know, just looking through, I'm sure you recommend looking through, you know, like a firm's ADV. Would that be a good idea for, for individuals as well? I think it's a good idea to make sure that it's a kind of company that you do want to work for. For example, you can see their fee structure and their size as well to make sure that you are applying for jobs that you actually want to be in. You know, it'd be pretty upsetting if if you didn't understand who a firm was and, you know, you got to the final stages of the interview process or even hired only to realize that you are actually not a good fit for the firm. That's a, a really great point for those who are, you know, coming into the career path, right, is make sure it's a good fit for yourself, not just, you know, the employer is a good fit for, for you. So, um I guess just to wrap things up, you know, you've, you've been very clear about a paraplaner not being the same thing as a junior planner. What do you really see in the, the differences between those two roles? I think the biggest difference is whether or not the individual is client facing and whether or not the individual is on track or is currently giving the recommend, recommendations directly to the clients. So junior, par- junior planners or associate planners are on the track to be coming client-facing and managing relationships and actually giving the recommendations directly to the clients. Paraplanners, however, they stay back office or like I mentioned, middle office, and they're the ones that are honing their technical skills. They are creating the plans and the preliminary recommendations, but they are never giving the recommendations directly to the clients. And I don't want and I don't want anyone to think that it is a stepping stone because it's very possible to become what I like to call a professional pair planner. You know, work your way all the way up, be very experienced, have a lot of technical expertise, and stay back office. You know, maybe you are an expert with taxes or, um, let's say, estate planning, or you know, you can have these expertise and still stay back office and just present those preliminary recommendations and allow the advisor to do all of the relationship management. Just to kind of piggyback off of what you said about, you know, the registered paraplanner being a very basic, you know, entry-level education, do you think there's a broader, you know, challenge here or possibility for 
having a true paraplanar designation similar to the CFP, where it's you know the the gold mark for a paraplanar versus a client facing planar? You know, that's an interesting question because the CFP as it is right now does not teach those client facing skills. They don't teach the relationship management skills, right? That that's what things like the residency program or the FPA residency is for is to teach you those soft skills that you don't learn at in the CFP coursework. So the CFP coursework really is very technical and that's what paraplanners need. So I would even challenge it to to say that those advisors, client facing indiv- individuals really need something supplemental that is about soft skills and being client facing whereas the CFP could be more for paraplanners. I, I guess what I was getting at there is, you know, you had mentioned there's different levels of, you know, like what you should expect to pay a paraplaner based on experience. Do you think we'll ever get to that level with paraplaning where maybe there's like a level one, two, and three paraplaner? Or have you seen that done anywhere else? You know, I would love to see something like that. And that's actually what they're doing in the UK right now. They do have different levels of paraplaners. And I think it does go up to level four. It might go a little bit higher, but each level has clearly defined um, education levels and programs associated with them and qualifications. And so you're able to pass an exam and say, I am now a level one paraplanner. And then you pursue more education and you pass another exam and you're now qualified as a level two paraplanner. And so it is very structured and very defined in the UK. And I would love to see that in the US. I would love to see paraplanning itself more defined, but also so individuals could really address and put on their resumes or be able to tell advisors where they fall in the structure. You know, are they level two qualified? Are they level four qualified? I think it would make everyone's lives easier. I think it would be easier to figure out how much to pay an individual. It'd be easier to figure out who you're looking to hire. You know, right now they say, I want a CFP professional but CFP professionals come from all different backgrounds. You know, what are the actual qualities and skills that you're looking for in the position? And so being able to say what type of paraplanner you want, I think would be amazing. You brought up a really great point there in that, you know, the CFP, there are those who are CFPs and are strictly doing investment management versus CFPs who are truly doing holistic planning. So you're, you're basically saying the same would be true for a paraplanner. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. We, we really appreciated hearing more, not only about your business, but just, you know, what you feel is the future of paraplaning versus the traditional path of junior planner to financial planner. So again, thank you for your time today. We really appreciated having you. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. If you like this episode, you can find more at fpaactivate.org and be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.